Hello, and welcome back to another edition of YCT Matters. This is Carol Platt-Lebow, the president of Yankee Institute. And today, since we are around the time of the 230th anniversary of the death of Roger Sherman, uh, the great Connecticut patriot, we are fortunate to have with us Professor Mark David Hall, an expert on Roger Sherman. And Professor Hall is the Herbert Hoover Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. Uh, Professor Hall's research and writing have focused primarily on American political theory and the relationship between religion and politics. So I don't know. We may have to have him back to talk about a lot of other things. Um, But Professor Hall has written or co-edited 12 books, including Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic, which was published in 2013. Roger Sherman died on July 23rd. 1793, which was just about 230 years ago. And so we are pleased to welcome Professor Hall to YCT Matters. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me, Carol. Uh, Of course. So obviously, uh, those of us in Connecticut are very proud to lay claim to Roger Sherman, who was, of course, a Connecticut politician and superior court judge. Um, But Often, um, you know, because he isn't really talked about in the same league as George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, a lot of us uh, claim him without knowing as much as we should about him. Uh, What led you to undertake a study of Roger Sherman, Professor Hall? Yeah, thank you. And you already sort of alluded to one of the reasons. I I think even among students of the American founding who are academics, who kind of get paid to do this for for a living, we tend to focus on only a handful of founders, the four who became president, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, Madison, usually Ben Franklin, just because he's so interesting. Yes. Maybe an Alexander Hamilton or a favorite or two. But the vast majority of founders, including very important, very influential founders, are simply overlooked. So one of the things I've tried to do throughout my scholarly career is expand the constellation of founders that we're concerned with. I've, I've edited, co-edited three different books that profile something like 34 founders altogether. And these do include all the big boys, Washington, Jefferson, Adams, but then plenty of other people like a Patrick Henry, a John Jay, a John Dickinson, a Roger Sherman. I want, I want to get scholars and ideally even members of the general reading public to consider people like Sherman, especially people like Sherman, because by measure many measures um, throughout the 1770s, 1780s, um, Sherman was literally among the very most important founders. Unfortunately for him, he died at a, a relatively early in the New Republic. He didn't become president. And so we tend to overlook his, his very quite significant contributions to the war for American independence and the creation of our constitutional republic. Yes. And um, and so uh, my understanding is that he was uh, he was in Philadelphia and helping to draw up um, the Constitution. And he was instrumental in something called the Connecticut Compromise. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Professor? Yeah, thank you. And if members of the general reading public know anything about Sherman, it's probably that he is one of the authors of the Connecticut Compromise. 
Let me take a little step back before I get to that. Sherman showed up in Philadelphia about three days late. And after he got there, he was shocked. He was shocked to find that Madison had proposed a Virginia plan, which would have given the new national government a plenary grant of power, the ability to do anything it wanted. And right away, Sherman, the advocate of states' rights, now he wanted a more powerful national government, but an advocate of state right, he said, no, this is this is imprudent. This is crazy. We should limit the power of the national government. And so he proposed an early version of what became Article 1, Section 8, which strictly enumerates the powers of the national government. Now, of course, since the 1930s, uh, Congress has largely ignored this enumeration. But for 150 years, I think it was an important check on federal power. Now, and, and, you know, it, Professor, I don't mean to interrupt, but, yeah. you know, it is so interesting how few people know that we do have a, a federal government that is supposed to be a government of strictly enumerated powers. And if people actually go and read the Constitution, they will see that the founders set out just certain things that the federal government is supposed to be doing. And there is no mention of education, for example. There's no mention of any of this stuff. And people nowadays try and shoehorn general welfare into all of this, but it really doesn't belong there. It's it's things like um, govern interstate commerce, print money, have a, a military, but it is a government of enumerated powers. And I'm very proud that Roger Sherman is the guy who sort of made that happen. So thank you. Yeah, no, and it's very important. And it's not necessarily even an anti-government argument, right? He, no. Rod Sherman thought that the government should have something to do with education, yes. but it should be the state government or the local governments, not the national government. Exactly. And so, yeah, so I, I think it's very important. It's um, I think we've departed from an originalist understanding of Article 1, Section 8 at our peril. Obviously, the founders never meant for the Commerce Clause or the General Welfare Clause to be a plenary grant of power to Congress, because if they did, then why bother enumerating any powers? We could have just stuck with what James Madison had. And so this was this was very important, a very important contribution of, of Sherman. We oftentimes, if I can take another slight step back, talk about James Madison as a father of the Constitution, and he did indeed contribute a great deal. Um, he and Sherman agreed on a number of issues, but when Madison and Sherman disagreed, Sherman won far more of those battles than he lost. And so I, I want to argue for replacing Madison with Sherman as a father of the Constitution, but I would contend that we really do have to consider the broader range of founders there in Philadelphia and their the ratifying conventions if we want to have a truly originalist understanding of the Constitution. But to return to your question, under the Articles of Confederation, every state had one vote, one state, one vote. And of course, the large states objected, not unreasonably, that's not fair. Um, it's not fair that Virginia has the same vote as in North Carolina, say. And so Madison, when he proposed his Virginia plan, and this is Virginia, and Virginia, remember, at that time included what we think of as the state of Virginia and West Virginia. And so it's a huge state, a very populous state. And so Madison said, hey, why don't we have proportional representation? We'll have representation based on the percentage of the population of, of the state. So if Virginia has 15% of the population, Virginia gets 15% of the representatives. If Rhode Island has 1%, Rhode Island gets 1%. Now, as you might imagine, in Philadelphia, the small state said, why should we possibly accept this? You're asking us to, to replace equality 
with the, with with the proportionality that makes us have almost no power. Um, James or Roger Sherman, I'm sorry, um, he came up with a compromise, and this is drawing from a compromise he suggested um, back in the Confederation Congress. But he said this: Why don't we have equal representation of the states in the Senate and proportional representation in the House? And if we do this, we will um, have both proportional representation, equal representation. This is a compromise that both the small states and the large states can live with. Now, you might be thinking Sherman's just acting in his own self-interest because Connecticut's a small state. Geographically, it kind of looks small in the late 18th century, but in terms of population, it was actually pretty much right in the middle. And so this is a, a compromise that doesn't necessarily benefit Connecticut in the 18th century in any particular way. And he also saw the Senate as, as critical for protecting the rights of the states and limiting the national government. As you know, originally the state senators, U.S. senators, were selected by the state legislature. And Sherman yes. said this is absolutely critical. If we ever abandon this, we might as well kiss federalism goodbye. And of course, the United States did abandon this with, I think it was the 17th Amendment. We now popularly elect senators. And within a decade or so of the 17th Amendment, we see the collapse of American federalism in the 1930s. Yeah. And so he was very prescient. And and for our listeners who uh, for whom American history class or civics was some time ago, of course, the Articles of Confederation that you referenced uh, was the, the governing document that preceded the Constitution and was much looser in terms of uh, the federal government, the, the governing body. Correct. And that was only by population that was just represented. Correct. And then it was after the Whiskey Rebellion that all the states decided that they needed some some sort of governing document that had a, a little bit more power for a federal government than the Articles of Confederation allowed for. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly correct. I, I argue a bit in my book that I think the Articles of Confederation get a bum rap. You know, under the Articles, the United States of America fought a war against uh, the world's greatest military power, and we won. Under the um, Articles, Congress convinced the states to give up their Western land claims, which is really quite extraordinary. And under the Articles, uh, the Confederation Congress passed probably one of the most important pieces of legislation in American history, the Northwest Ordinance which guarantees Republican forms of government of the, to the states that would form in the old Northwest. It protects religious liberty and very significantly it banned slavery in the states that would become Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, and parts of Minnesota. So this is a wonderful piece of legislation. One of the first acts of the first federal Congress was to reauthorize the Northwest Ordinance. And so when the delegates gathered in Philadelphia, you had some like a, a James Wilson and Alexander Hamilton, a James Madison, that just wanted to throw the articles out altogether and come up with a far more powerful national government. Um, a federalist, and Roger Sherman was a federalist. He saw the need for a stronger national government, but nothing of the, the sort desired by a Wilson or Hamilton. And so he was fighting to amend the Articles or to come up with a constitution that looked a lot more like the Articles that, that carefully constrained the powers of the national government. And then, of course, you had some founders that eventually became Federalists who were just scared to death, even of this document that came out of Philadelphia, arguing that it gave far too much power to the national government 
far too much power to the to the presidency. And so they oppose the Constitution altogether. But I lay that out to suggest that I think Sherman was in the sweet middle spot, um, supporting a Constitution that gave the government, national government, more power, but carefully limiting it, and what succeeded in limiting it until the 1930s. It, it, it's really quite amazing. Uh, was Sherman pretty much by himself in engineering the Connecticut Compromise, or were there others along with him uh, who were working this through? No, it's usually credited to Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman. Sherman was Ellsworth's mentor, and um, and yeah, so they're usually credited with putting this together. And of course, they had lots of supporters when push came mm-hmm. to shove um, within Philadelphia. But that really, but so it really sounds like it was pretty much Roger Sherman's brainchild. Was Ellsworth a, a Connecticutian or was he from some other state professor? Yeah, no, he's from Connecticut. He um, was a, a very important politician. He was one of Connecticut's first senators. Um, and so in some respects, you could argue he he surpassed his mentor, um, he lived well into the 19th century and played a very important role in both national politics and Connecticut politics. Okay, see, this is when for these podcasts, I need one of those little magic buttons that makes one of those happy little sounds like fairy dust falling down to celebrate the contributions of Connecticut heroes, because we don't really hear enough about them. Uh, we hear about the Virginians and and we hear a lot about, you know, even other people from, you know, Pennsylvania, like Ben Franklin, but we don't hear about the Connecticut people. And that's very exciting. Uh, in um, looking uh, at research for this this show, I also understand that Roger Sherman is the only one who signed all of the most important American revolutionary documents. Am I correct? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So the Declaration Resolves, he's on the five-person committee that puts together the Declaration of Independence. He helps draft and signs the Articles of Confederation. We've already talked about his critical role in the Federal Convention. He does go on to serve in the first Federal Congress as uh, as representative. The only handwritten draft of the Bill of Rights that we have is in his hand. Um, he almost certainly played a role in, a, in approving that. And then he became a, a senator for basically his last two years of service in, in Congress. And we have very little information about that because the Senate was private at the time. To highlight its importance, let's go back to 1776. So there are three key congressional committees in 1776, at least in retrospect. The committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence, the committee to draft the Articles of Confederation, and the Board of War, which basically helped oversee the war from the congressional standpoint. Roger Sherman is the only member of Congress who is on all three committees. Thomas Jefferson, the young Virginian, by way of contrast, was only on the committee to draft the the Declaration of Independence. Now, this is probably a good thing for America. Jefferson, it's fair to say, is more eloquent than Roger Sherman ever was. But one of the reasons Jefferson was able to take the lead in doing this is that was his only major committee, whereas Sherman was on all three of these important committees. So in the same way as we might judge the relative importance of, con- of members of Congress today, by which committee that they serve on, are they on the Appropriations Committee or are they on the Committee on the Post Office or whatever, Right. Uh, you, you would look in 1776 and say Sherman is the outstanding man of Congress. And so he's on these key committees making key contributions. And um, young Jefferson, you know, of course, 
I think it's fair to say if we have to weigh people, it's fair to say he ended up becoming more important than Sherman over the long run. But this is not an excuse to ignore Roger Sherman and his many, many contributions to the creation of the American Republic. And we haven't even talked about Connecticut. He's involved in Connecticut politics at the local level throughout all these years and doing real important things. Yes. And, you know, it really says something also um, the 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 skills people have also have a lot to do with the way they're remembered in history, because those who are, for example, eloquent or good writers like Thomas Jefferson are far more likely to have their work memorialized than someone who sounds like he was an excellent collaborator or negotiator like Roger Sherman. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And also some founders just cared more about their place in history. You didn't mention this book, and I'll mention it not because I get any royalties, but I put together <laughs> the works of Roger Sherman. You can get it on Amazon Prime from for Liberty Fund for $14.50 and no shipping if you're a member of Amazon Prime. But I show you this one volume. This is all we have of any significant paper by Thomas by um, Roger Sherman. Thomas Jefferson, by way of contrast, carefully saved all of his correspondence. He invented a machine. So when he wrote a letter, it would make a copy of that. So I don't know exactly how many volumes, but I'm guessing the papers of Thomas Jefferson might be 45, 50 volumes. Same Alexander Hamilton in his short life, I think the 35 volumes, the Adams Family paper, well up towards 100 volumes. And so some founders were looking to their place in history, and they give historians and, and people like me, students of American political thought, a lot more to work with. Roger Sherman was so busy doing things, and he, I think it's fair to say, wasn't particularly concerned about his place in history. And so we have a lot less to work with, uh, but that doesn't mean he's any less important, right? In some respects, it's a noble thing not to care about your place in history and simply being um, active in this in the, in the in the city, the state, and the national government to pursue the common good. Yes, and it it, it is, and it's it's really somewhat unfortunate that people who are selfless in that way end up being somewhat overlooked. Um, no, that's right. Can, can I mention real quickly um, a couple of things that Sherman did in Connecticut? Yes, that's what I was just about to ask about. Oh, good. All right. So in 1783. Roger Sherman and the aptly named Richard Law were asked to revise all of the statutes of Connecticut. And this is amazing. You can go and get them. It's, it's in one volume. It's amazing how few statutes Connecticut had in, in, in the 18th century. And so he, he worked on a number of them. I think the statutes beginning A through L. Then Law worked on the one, the rest of the alphabet. But then, of course, they put their heads together. Um, one of the things when we think about Thomas Jefferson, we always think about his famous statute for religious liberty in Virginia. But it's a mistake just to look at that one statute because every state is revising its statutes, including Connecticut. And Connecticut comes up with a fine religious liberty statute that is penned by Roger Sherman as well. And I think this is a very nice contrast. Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman never owned an enslaved person. And yet when Richard Law and Roger Sherman are revising Connecticut statutes, they come up with a statute to provide for the gradual manumission of slaves in the state of Connecticut. And so this is a very laudable activity that, of course, Jefferson never did anything really like that and slaves throughout his lifetime and didn't free them in his will, whereas Sherman understood the evils of this pernicious institution and he took concrete actions to end it in his home state. Yes. Um, and so 
uh, he Roger Sherman, uh, after the revolution, he served in, uh, you know, after the Constitution was ratified, um, he served in the House of Representatives, correct? That's correct. And one of the things we have to recognize is that they simply did not have our understanding of separation of powers. So for a long time, he would hold a local office. He would be in the upper house of the Connecticut legislature, simultaneously serving on the superior court of the of, of Connecticut, and then also serving as a delegate to the Continental Confederation Congress or the first federal Congress. By the time he served as a delegate to the first federal Congress, Connecticut had changed its laws and said, well, if you're going to serve in the national government, you can't serve in the state government. Sherman actually asked for a special dispensation so he could continue to serve on the Superior Court. And Connecticut said, no, you need to focus. And so he focused <laughs> on um, work down in, in um, I was going to say Washington, D.C., but I guess New York City. Um, when he was serving there. And he was a very active member of Congress. He's the oldest member of Congress. Um, he continued to fight for the limitation of state uh, of, of the national government. Someone proposed, hey, here's a great idea. I'm paraphrasing. Um, why don't we provide a subsidy for this glass manufacturer? Why don't we have Congress provide a subsidy? It's like 1789. And Sherman said, no, Congress doesn't have the enumerated powers to do that sort of thing. Um, Sherman took a very active role in drafting the Bill of Rights and preparing the Bill of Rights. One of the things I haven't mentioned, and I don't want to paint Sherman as if he wins every battle he fought, he was profoundly concerned with the concentration of power in the presidency. He fought for the most limited possible U.S. um, president, chief executive. He lost a lot of those battles. In the first federal Congress, he continued to fight these battles. One of the interesting debates in the first federal Congress was, we all know the president gets to appoint certain federal officials, but can he uniformly remove, say, the Secretary of Treasury, or would you, we need to go back to the Senate, since the Senate confirms that position, would the Senate also have to confirm his removal? Sherman fought very hard to make sure the Senate was involved, and again, he lost that battle. And so I don't want to make it sound as if Sherman was a, a demagogue winning all battles. He won some, he lost some. Um, but even when they, when people would lose battles, I think of the anti-federalists, right? They lost. And yet, because of them, we have a Bill of Rights. And so if we want to understand the American founding, we really have to look at a, a broad constellation of founders and not just the four that became president in Alexander Hamilton and Ben Franklin. Yes. And, you know, it is wonderful to have this larger understanding of uh of Connecticut's contribution in the in the shape of Roger Sherman to the founding of our country. And uh, and I had not realized how much he actually contributed um, and the reason that in some ways he is underappreciated, that is because of his very modest lack of attention to his place in history. So this has been wonderfully illuminating. And uh, and what is interesting is for those of us in Connecticut, um, he, we can go and see uh, where he's buried. He is in the Grove Street Cemetery in New Haven, Connecticut. And I think I'm going to go and do that sometime uh, because, he, you know, he he died in 1793, 350 years ago. And uh, and and he is still his grave is here with us. And uh, and he really made some wonderful contributions that I didn't have the opportunity to fully appreciate until now. So thank you so much, Professor. 
Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. And I, I love talking about Sherman and I'd be happy to do something like this again, if you're interested. Well, of course, no, we would love to, um, because it is uh, political theory is something we care a lot about. And also the relationship between religion and politics and all kinds of different things. And uh, I am going to have to take a close look at your book titled Roger Sherman and the Creation of the American Republic, which I understand is available on Amazon. And uh, we are very grateful to you, Professor Mark David Hall, Professor of Politics, Distinguished Professor of Politics at George Fox University. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Hall. Oh, you're quite welcome. Let me just say real briefly, since um, we made this arrangement, I've agreed to go to Regent University in Virginia Beach. So starting this fall, I'm going to be there overseeing um, master's and doctoral dissertations. And so if anyone's interested in doing an online program writing on the American founding, I'd be happy to chat with them. Wonderful. So you are now Professor Mark David Hall, soon to be of Regent University. That's right. And we, uh, we wish you a happy and successful tenure there. Thank you so much for your time with us today. And we look forward to speaking with you again. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, as always, we are appreciative of you, our listeners. And this is Carol Platt-Lebow. We look forward to having you with us again on YCT Matters. I'll show you around this place I call home.